Well, I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some on our welcome table back there. We would love for you to take one. I'm going to be reading a couple of chapters out of Genesis today. So I especially would like you to have a Bible uh, today so you can read along with us. Um, In making our way through Genesis, though, we've now at this point covered creation. And in addition to that, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about sin. And today we're going to see the consequence of sin as we encounter what I would call decreation through the flood. And then beyond that, ultimately recreation and grace in Noah and the ark. And the early chapters of Genesis, if you haven't already realized this hanging out with us on a Sunday morning, they lay the foundation of sin really thick at the beginning of this story, dealing with the brokenness of man. And I think that's because it's really necessary at the beginning as a precursor to establish the destructive nature of sin and its pervasiveness in creation before we can celebrate the astounding nature of our God who saves people from their sin by grace. I think grace is only sweet when you finally understood or when you first understood how bitter sin is. And the unfolding story of the Bible takes us through a lot of sin, even as it brings us to the beauty of grace, the sweetness of grace. So before we read our text this morning, I want to again say that the story that we're going to read in Genesis chapter 6 through 8 this morning is what I would call a real and true historical account of actual events. And as fantastic as this story might sound as we read it together, I think we are encountering a true story that actually happened the way that it's told to us in the early chapters of Genesis. Just this week, a prominent Christian thinker um, named William Lane Craig, he released an article in a journal called First Things, And in that article, he claimed that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not, in fact, pure history. They are what he calls mytho-history. And they are given solely for the purpose of instruction rather than as a record of events. And I think he's only half right. I would agree that Genesis is instructive, particularly those first 11 chapters, But I've been arguing from the very first day of our time going through Genesis together that what we're looking at in this book is a true historical account of actual events that happened, even the supernaturally crazy ones that we see, especially in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And I would go so far as to say that I think it is potentially dangerous to our faith to claim that it's anything less than history, Because I think what that does is it begins to bring the rest of God's word under potential suspicion. If this isn't true the way that it's recorded, then maybe there's some other things in the Bible that belong more to the category of mytho-history than actual true events. So I want to explain something to you. Every person has presuppositions through which they interpret the world. A presupposition is something that you assume from the beginning as you receive new information and process it and reach conclusions. So, for example, I'll use a hot topic 
that might be somewhat controversial, but I think that it will help illustrate my point. If you think that the government is generally trustworthy, then you're probably going to lean to the pro-vaccine side. If you presuppositionally believe the government is generally trustworthy, then you're probably going to lean to the pro-vaccine side. Whereas if you think that the government is generally suspicious and should be generally held in suspicion, you have that presupposition, then you're going to probably lean to the no-vaccine side, specifically when it comes to COVID, okay? Again, I'm just trying to make a point here. I'm trying to illustrate this. Trusting the government or being suspicious of the government is a presupposition. It's already there. And therefore, when you get information regarding something like the vaccine, that's going to influence the conclusion that you reach. That's what a presupposition is. It's something you assume at the outset that helps determine where you end in the conclusion. So when it comes to these early chapters of Genesis, if you think that natural reason is the best way through which to determine truth, that's your presupposition, then you are going to have a hard time accepting the early chapters of Genesis as being a real record of historical events. Or to say it another way, if you believe that your own ability to think and the power of science as it seems to produce evidence scientific theories and the way that they interpret the world, if you have a presupposition that that's the best way to arrive at truthful conclusions, then you're probably going to see Genesis chapters 1 through 11 as something more like a fairy tale or a myth. I mean, you've never seen a snake talk. You can't imagine a flood covering all of the earth. And so your presupposition is that because science and reason are the ultimate way to understand the world, they mu- the story must be telling us something that's less than fully true, okay? Now, I- I'm saying this because I want to just play my hand and tell you that's not how I approach the Bible. As I get up here and I teach you, I approach the Bible with the presupposition that every word of God is true. And that the revelation that God has given us in his word is the best way to arrive at a truthful conclusion. It's the exclusive way to find, well, I should say, it is the most lofty, the most authoritative way to arrive at truth. Even more certain than my own reasoning or even the scientific method. I presuppose that if there's something in the Bible that I don't understand then the problem is my mind is limited or my knowledge is limited, not that the Bible therefore must be some kind of mythology or some kind of, have some kind of error in it. And I'm telling you again at the outset this because I don't want you to be confused. I believe that as we read the flood story, the way that it's recorded in Genesis, that this happened exactly as the story says. And I believe that because I believe the Bible to be true, and I believe the genre of Genesis to be history. And I'm skeptical of my own mind. I'm skeptical even of my ability to reason. I'm skeptical of a lot of the claims of science that I think makes some overstated claims. And I'm skeptical of philosophical conclusions that have been reached by philosophers that rely more on perception than on revealed truth. But I'm not skeptical 
about what the Bible teaches. I am confident. And so I operate with the presupposition that because God's word is perfect, it will lead us to truth, and I make no qualm about that. I I make no excuses for that. I see no reason to explain that away. So we're going to see that Noah had faith to build an ark, even when it must have been ridiculously difficult to understand why in the world God was commanding him to do this. And I would like to encourage you to be like Noah, that likewise we would have the same kind of faith to believe like Noah did, that God's word is true and it's reliable even when we encounter things within it that are difficult to understand, even when we encounter things within it that might seem almost impossible. I think it's reasonable to have this kind of faith in God. I don't think that's contrary to reason. And so I want you to know that what we're about to read in the Bible is not a myth. It actually happened. And I personally will believe that even if every other person on planet Earth tells me I'm an idiot for reaching that conclusion. I have built my life on the wisdom of this book, God's Word, and I don't regret any of that. I think it has served me well. I think it's been a blessing to my life and my family. And I think it's far better to trust the wisdom of God's Word than the wisdom of man. And Scripture has the words of life. Where else would you go? So we're going to read Genesis 6-5 through Genesis 8-19, which is why we didn't do another Scripture reading, because this is a hefty chunk. And I really do encourage you to follow along, because just listening to this is difficult. If you read along with me, you'll probably stay more engaged. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hike through it pretty quick just because there's so much. So beginning in Genesis 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, 
Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. 
But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, And every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your word is true and that it's trustworthy. And we thank you for what Jesus said that if we build our life upon these teachings, we'll be like a wise man who even when the rains and the waters come, that our life will be firm and steadfast because your word endures and you are a good God. You bless those who seek you. And I pray that we would, in fact, build our lives upon your word. I pray, like Noah, that we would trust you, that even when things seem strange in the commands that you give us, I pray that we would stand firm on what you teach us, that we would believe that it's for our good because you love us. And so, God, just encourage us and speak to us through your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's talk first about Noah. I mean, there's so much here. I, I, you know, I'm cruising through the Genesis story, but let's talk first about Noah. Chapter 6, verse 8, tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. I said last week, if you were here, that the word favor could also be translated grace in the Hebrew. God selected Noah to be his man. And it was not based on anything that Noah did. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. That we are saved by grace. It's not because of anything that we have done. And I think it's very telling that first the Scripture tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of God before it gives the description of the kind of man of God that Noah was. Romans 9.16 says, So then salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So friends, this is the very definition of grace. God shows us kindness. He offers us acceptance. He gives us love. He pours out his favor upon us. Not because we've done anything to deserve that, but simply because it is in God's nature to be gracious. God owes you nothing, but he offers you love and redemption because he is gracious. Our sin ultimately makes us deserving of wrath and punishment like the people who perished in the flood. It makes us 
deserving of death, but God bore the consequence of our sin Himself on the cross, and in place of the judgment that we deserved, He gave us favor instead. And each of us are like Noah in that God has showed us favor. For those of us who believe and have placed our trust in faith, we're like Noah. God has showed us favor just like He showed Noah favor, and He has rescued us out of the flood of his wrath that is yet to come for sin in the world. Although we rightly deserve to be drowned for our sin, God has not dealt with us according to what we deserve, but instead he has dealt with us according to his grace, according to his mercy, according to his kindness and his favor. Praise God for that. And again, remember when I said it's essential that we establish a foundation of sin as a precursor before we can really understand what grace is. If you don't think that you are deserving of condemnation or punishment, how could you ever appreciate the grace that God offers you? And praise God for this grace because woe is me if God dealt with me according to what I deserve. But our text in Genesis 6 does go on to say in verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. Now, I think the temptation could be to read that and go, no, Grady, you're wrong. Look, Noah was blameless. He walked with God. But it's important, again, that this description comes after the fact that Noah was just given God's favor. Because this latter description of Noah that he was a blameless man who walked with God. This is what took place in Noah's life after God gave him grace. The cause is grace. The effect is righteousness. The New Testament is very clear about this. Faith in God leads to righteousness. Noah could never have been righteous on his own. He wasn't chosen by God because he was righteous, but he became righteous as a result of the grace that God offered to him. He believed God in spite of all the reasons to doubt God or question him, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31 puts it like this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it's not that Noah was chosen by God to escape the flood because Noah was an exceptional guy and he was able to boast in himself. Quite the opposite. Noah became an exceptional man of faith and righteousness because he was chosen by God. So that the boasting of Noah when he walked off the ark would not be, look at me, what a great man I am but rather look at God and what a gracious Savior he is. The beauty of this story and the beauty of the story of Scripture is that God pours out his grace on undeserving people. That's you. God's grace redeems us. 
It welcomes us in. It draws us to righteousness. It takes away our boasting, our arrogance, our pride. It leads us to rejoice in the God who is ever-giving and ever-loving for who he is and what he's done. Grace changes us from the inside out so that we no longer love sin and delight to do evil, but instead we're eager to give our lives over to the one who has saved us. His grace is our wisdom, it's our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. All of that is in God's grace. And we see that with Noah, this is exactly the case because if you look at verses 6 or chapter 622, 75, 79, 716, you see this repeated refrain that Noah did all that God commanded him. That was the overflow of God's grace given to him. Grace saved him, and grace drove him onward towards obedience to God. So my friends, I want you to know there are three possible responses to sin. You can give yourself over to it. You can continue in sin, and you can pretend like it has no consequence. Those would be the revelers that were ultimately drowned in the flood. Or you can try and work your way out of it yourself. You can work your way out of your sin and boast in all that you've done and say to God, I don't need you. I got this on my own. But the last option is the only one that actually leads to life. And the third option, the last option, is you can just appeal to the grace of God. You can receive forgiveness for your sins and you can be given a new orientation for your life, a new direction, a new purpose for your life to serve God in response to his grace and seek to do all that he commands you like Noah did. Now for the rest of the world who spurned God and rejected him, who continued on according to that first option as if sin didn't matter, it it doesn't have any consequence. We see that God pronounces judgment upon them in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Because of the great corruption infesting the hearts of men on earth, God determines to bring an end to all flesh except Noah and his family and those animals that enter the ark along with him. God is the giver of life. God is the author of life. And as the giver of life, it's his right to give it and also to take it as he sees fit. One of the things that I feel passionate about as a pastor is just helping people see themselves rightly before God. In our self-centered world, I think that this is a necessary prerequisite to coming to faith in Jesus, that you would see yourself rightly in response to who God is, rightly before God. It's humbling, but it's necessary for us to understand God is king and we are not. You don't have the power to determine the number of breaths that you'll take in your life or the number of days that will determine your life. It's humbling but necessary for us to acknowledge that God doesn't owe us anything. You may see yourself as a very good person, but that doesn't obligate God to you in any way. You're not obligated another day of life. You're not obligated joy. You're not obligated any of the things that you possess in your life. And I think it's this humbling, one of the reasons why I I feel passionate about this, as strange as that might sound, is because I think it's this humbling that drives us then to look to God for grace and mercy, 
Apart from him, what am I? What do I have that has not been given to me? Instead of pridefully resisting God or arrogantly assuming that I don't need him, if I acknowledge who I am before him, then I am driven to him out of desperation. And so here's a lesson for us, to look to God for favor. Not to look to ourselves for some kind of identity, neither an identity that's stuck in sin, that's only ever defined by the way that sin rules me, nor an identity that's stuck in self-righteousness that says, look what a great person I am, but instead an identity that's grounded in the loving grace of God. Woe is me but for God's grace in my life. But another lesson we find here is that God knows full well that his efforts to cleanse the earth of sin through the flood are ultimately going to be ineffective. God knows this. We've already talked about this a lot through Genesis. He knows all things. He knows all possible things. He knows ahead of time that even though he's going to bring the flood, it's not going to cleanse the earth of sin. I find it sort of funny, actually, in a sad, tragic way, that one of the first things that Noah does after he gets off the ark is he builds an altar to God, and then he goes and gets drunk. God knows that even if he wipes out all of mankind, it's not going to change the hearts of men. The seed of sin grows in the hearts of people. It does not grow in the soil of the earth. Like I say often, it's not out there. It is in here. And so the flood is instructive for us because it reminds us that the only way that God can cleanse sin from his creation is to cleanse the hearts of people. I think that's one of the points of this story is that God has to do a greater work than bring a flood. He's got to change hearts. And the story of the flood points us then forward to Jesus because Jesus is the ark of our salvation. Just as Noah and his family entered into the ark and they were brought through destruction and danger, they were brought to safety on the other side of judgment and condemnation, by being present in the ark, we too must enter into the ark that is Jesus Christ so that by his work we can be brought safely through judgment. The ark of Noah is a type of Christ. And it's Christ who brings us safely through God's intention to destroy sin, cleansing our hearts so that we are no longer mired and ruined and tormented and enslaved by sin. And there's no other way to escape God's wrath for sin except to humbly hide yourself in Christ, who is our ark, who cleanses us from the inside out. Now, as for the ark, it's an absolute engineering marvel. I think I can sincerely say that in its cultural or time context, there's never been anything like it on earth. At least 450 feet long, there's some debate about how long a cubit actually is. Your Bible probably says it's 18 inches, but it could have been as long as 24 inches. So at least 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall, with three distinct decks. It was the first and only cruise ship to have a full zoo on board, as far as I know. Roughly half the size of the Titanic, the boat 
must have taken several hundred trees to construct, maybe several thousand, depending on what kind of trees we're talking about. And it had within it at least 1.5 million cubic feet of storage space. And even today, cruise ships and freight tankers are engineering marvels to, be, to behold. But we're talking about a ship like that that was built five, 6,000 years ago, maybe? And keep in mind that Noah and his family were using ancient hand tools to cut the decking planks, miles and miles of decking and siding. They were somehow mixing all of this pitch by hand and fashioning the boards together without rivets or welding. And I'm guessing, based on the timeline that we see in the text here, that it took Noah and his family somewhere between 50 and 100 years to build this ark. Let's just go with the median, 75 years. Now, I haven't got into this very much during our study of Genesis, but I believe that if you read Genesis closely up to this point, the earth prior to the flood was geolog- or ecologically and geologically very different than the world that we currently live in. I believe that the planet was covered with a canopy of vapor water, and that up to this point, it had never rained on earth. Instead, uh, and we see this because there are no rainbows prior to Noah's exit. God says, I will put my bow in the sky. There was no rain prior to the flood, therefore there were no rainbows prior to the flood. Instead, the ground was irrigated through these vast springs of underground reservoirs that provided large river networks and a dew-like mist that gave ample water to supply the need for the vegetation. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that Noah was a herald of righteousness, or you could say a preacher of righteousness, meaning that for the 75 or so years that Noah and his family were building this ark and laboring to complete this project, he was also warning all of the curious observers who came to see what a nut job he was that at some point judgment was coming God was going to flood this world and destroy all life. So imagine with me for a moment the sheer ridicule that Noah must have received from the people around him. They've never seen rain. The only water they know is this mist that waters the earth and the rivers that flow through the land. And here is Noah building a massive boat in the middle of dry land, lugging all of these trees and hammering away to complete this project, all the while telling the world that had never seen a drop of rain, that when this boat was completed, God was going to send a torrential flood, water from the sky, and water rising from the earth, and as a result, the whole world would be drowned, and all mankind would perish. People must have thought that he was legitimately certifiably nuts. If they'd had rubber, they would have put him in a rubber room. Sadly, nobody listened to the message. Nobody listened to 75 years of preaching, a message of coming wrath and judgment, so that they might turn to the merciful God to be saved. That's tragic. And at the end of all this work, at the end of all the preaching and warning regarding the wrath to come, only Noah and his family entered this ark with the animals. 
And man, maybe you feel some frustration in your life because you've been telling people in your life for days or months or years that God's wrath is still coming to be poured out on this creation and that there's salvation through Jesus. There's a way to be saved and redeemed. There's a way to know eternal life and yet nobody seems to care. Does it ever feel like nobody cares? When you say, I know a way that you can have all of the desires of your heart met. I know a way that you can finally know peace. I know a way that you can no longer be enslaved by that thing. It's in Christ. And people don't care. Or maybe you, maybe you find yourself wondering, you know, is the return of Jesus ever going to happen? We've been waiting a long time as Christians, 2,000 years. And in my own life, I've been eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. I hope it's, I hope it's any day, but what if it's another 1,000 years? Well, I want to point you to Noah and simply say, don't grow weary. Keep being a herald of righteousness. Keep clinging to the hope that you have in Christ. Because it's not in vain. Trust me when I say that when it comes to your preaching, you have not yet made your throat as hoarse as Noah's must have been. As he proclaimed over the course of all those decades that God's judgment was coming and that people could find salvation in his boat. And who knows, he may have waited as long as a hundred years before that first drop of rain finally fell to confirm that what he had been waiting for was about to happen. And we think about our own efforts to share Jesus, to warn people about the wrath that is still yet to come. Or as we wait for Jesus to return, I just want to encourage you to look to Noah for inspiration here. He faithfully did all that God commanded him to do. He persevered in his efforts to be a preacher of righteousness despite the scorn that he received as a result. And he waited on God, trusting and believing that God would do everything that he said he would do. And Noah saw that day. The faith that he had was proven true. And in his preaching, I want to point this out to you. I don't believe that Noah concerned himself with the results but only the message. If he concerned himself with results, then he would have entered the ark in utter despair because nobody that he warned came with him. He concerned himself with the message, or simply we could say with the work. Hopefully, you and I as believers want all the people of this world to escape God's judgment and to be saved by his grace. If you are eager to see some people condemned for eternity and go to hell, you need to check your heart. We should be eager to see God proven to be just. But God does not rejoice in the destruction of the evil. And hopefully, we're motivated out of a desire to see people come to faith in Christ and be rescued from judgment and destruction, that as a result of that, we're faithfully telling people around us, come to Jesus, there is hope in his name. Be set free from sin and death. But I want you to understand, you are not responsible for the results any more than Noah was. You are only responsible for the message. 
It's our job to proclaim salvation through Jesus Christ, but we cannot change a person's heart no matter how much we desire to. Only God can change the heart. And I think we can find some rest in the words of Scripture when Scripture tells us that although salvation is a message for the whole world, and it is God's desire that all men would come to him and be saved, Jesus also said, few will find this gate into eternal life. The ark of Christ's blood is more than sufficient to cover the sins of any who might come to Jesus looking for forgiveness and redemption. But most people who hear that message will think that you are crazy when you say that you trust in a man who's been dead for 2,000 years and you base your life on a book that is old and archaic and outdated. The door is narrow, the path is difficult, and most people will simply not be interested in what Jesus has to offer. They'll say there's no flood coming. They'll go on marrying and being married, eating and drinking, carrying on with life as if there are no consequences, willfully opposed to the righteousness that God offers them through faith in Christ. And the day of the Lord will come upon them, Jesus said, like a thief in the night, and they too will be swept away. But we're not responsible for how they respond to our message. We are only responsible to continue to proclaim the good news in the face of much opposition, and we are responsible to continue like Noah did to do all that God commands us to do. Next, we're told in chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, that in the 600th year of Noah's life, the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. There's a view of the flood story that claims that the flood was not a worldwide event, that the waters did not cover all of the earth, but instead this was a regional event. It was localized to wherever Noah was. But I don't think there's sufficient evidence in the text to support that view. It's my view that the entire earth was covered in water. It seems that these deep reservoirs that God placed within the earth to feed the springs that would make the rivers, along with the canopy of vapor over the earth, they were rent asunder to such a degree that over the course of a total of 150 days, every landmass on earth was completely covered with water. Can you imagine you can't. It, it defies the imagination. There was recently some flooding in Germany. I don't know if you saw any of those videos. There was also recently flooding in Louisiana because of the hurricane. Maybe you saw some of those photos or videos. We've probably all seen at some point the unrelenting power of water when it rises unrestrained 10 or 20 feet Ripping tides, crushing waves, flowing water that hits things like a bulldozer. It is crazy. This is a cataclysmic event of global proportions that is truly impossible to even wrap your mind around. With the waters rising so high that they covered the top of whatever mountain at that point in time was the highest peak on earth, now, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6 tells us that this event was so catastrophic that the pre-flood world that Noah and his family were living in, it perished. That's the word that 2 Peter uses. And I think that means 
that the world that we now live in, the way that we experience it, has been utterly altered from the pre-flood world the way that Noah knew it, and that is the result of God's judgment for sin. I think that the very face of the earth was in a way remade from what it was then to what it was now. I said at the beginning we've looked at creation. In the flood we find decreation, and as the waters recede, a form of recreation. And if you read chapter 7, verse 11, and then chapter 8, verse 14, and you put the dates together, you see that Noah and his family spent a total of a year and ten days on the ark, while the waters first rose and then gradually receded. And when they got off the ark, the world that they looked at was an entirely different place. No animal life, no human life, no sign of civilization at all. The ground was largely a wasteland. There may have been some grasses or some shrubs that had begun to grow. The sky was now filled with billowy clouds and strange, colorful, prismatic light that we now call the rainbow. And although all life had been wiped off the face of the earth for sin, God had made a way for Noah and his family to be be saved from destruction by a sheer act of God's gracious provision. There's a little word in here that I want to call your attention to. It's found back in chapter 6, verse 18. It's the word covenant. This is the first time that this word appears in the text of the Bible. But it's a singularly important word. God says to Noah that he will establish a covenant with Noah. We're going to look at that in detail next week as we continue into the following chapters. But this is a word that first appears here in the Bible, but it's going to essentially define all of the rest of Scripture in how God interacts with people. He enters into a covenant with them, a promise. God chooses to subject himself to a series of promises that he makes to mankind, and in particular to his chosen people. And today I want to use this as a launch pad into communion. So we're going to take communion together this morning. The way that we're going to do that is we're going to pass the communion elements through the chairs as our worship team leads us in this next song. And when the juice and the cracker come to you, I want you to just grab the cup and grab the cracker and hold on to it for a moment. After the song is done when everybody has their communion elements, then I'll come back up and we'll take communion together. But I want to say, as I do pretty much every time that we take communion together as a church, if you're not a Christian, we're very glad that you are here with us. We're, we're pleased to have you in our church family worshiping with us today. But I want to say that this is not for you. Communion is both a somber time of remembrance and it's also a time of rejoicing in response to God's grace that though we are deserving of sin, he has not chosen to treat us according to what we deserve, but instead God has redeemed us from judgment and wrath. And communion celebrates those truths. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to understand you are still under God's wrath. 
please see me as a kind of Noah right now. I'm telling you, the flood is coming, and you have no ark that you can enter into other than Jesus Christ. And if you do not enter that ark, then you remain under wrath and judgment, and destruction is what your future holds. However, if you're not a Christian, but you want to join us in that ark, now is a good time to do it. We invite you to come inside with us, that you too might escape death and receive life. All you have to do is turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. In your heart, in sincerity, you surrender to him, and you tell him that you desire him to be your Lord. And if you surrender your life to him, then we invite you to take communion with us right now. You need do nothing else but turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And we would rejoice to have you participate with us. But the reason I want to point out the word covenant to you in chapter 6 is because, like Noah, God relates to us in covenant. We call this the new covenant or the covenant of grace, or Jesus says it's the covenant of his blood. We are saved because of this covenant. And this covenant is ratified or signed, if you will, by the blood of Jesus himself. And in this covenant, God makes a promise, actually not to you, God makes a promise to himself. Because God's the only one who can actually keep promises. And yet we are involved in the promise as the beneficiaries God promises God that he will not destroy us because of what God did on the cross. And you receive all of the blessings of redemption, mercy, kindness, favor, love. God bears the responsibilities to uphold the contract, and indeed he did that on the cross, and we receive all the benefits. God promises to himself that he will bear the wrath for sin, by sending Jesus the Son to die on the cross for anyone and everyone who chooses to turn to him for redemption. And we receive that gift of salvation by faith. Like Noah, we trust God to spare us, to keep us, and we enter into the saving work of Jesus Christ. His blood then that you're going to take in the cup, it's juice, but it signifies the blood of Christ is the sign of this covenant. And we take communion to remember that rather than some big boat to save us, Jesus gave his body and his blood so that we might be rescued from judgment. We are made righteous by his act of righteousness applied to us. So as we sing this next song, I encourage you, turn your hearts to God in worship. Maybe you have some unrepentant sin that you need to deal with before God. Receive from him mercy, forgiveness, grace. And then also remember to worship and rejoice. Christ has carried you through the waters of judgment and into eternal life. And that is something to praise God for.